The text that we're working through today is Mark 10, 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let, us, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right and my, or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Uh, so before we get into the text for today, I wanted to provide you a couple proofs of authenticity. Um, this is often called the realm of apologetics. Um, apologetics is just a word that means an answer. And one of the things that I'd like to do whenever it shows up in the text is give you these answers that the Bible has for some of the criticisms that skeptics have of the Bible. Um, so there are actually two that show up in this text that I think are really helpful for us as we understand that the Bible is not just a document that was written a couple thousand years ago, but actually God's true word for us and recounts true history. Um, the first of those principles that shows up is the embarrassment principle. If you've been listening through the Gospel of Mark series with us, you know that this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death in this middle section of Mark's Gospel. And you also know that every time Jesus has predicted his death in this section, um, one or a couple of the disciples has made a big mistake. Do you remember the first time Jesus predicted his death, Peter came to him and rebuked him, and Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The second time Jesus predicted his death, the disciples started arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus had to tell them that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And now this third time, Jesus predicts his death and then James and John come to him and say, so can we sit on your right and on your left when you come in your glory? There's a criticism against the Bible's authenticity that says that the Bible was not the recounting of real things that Jesus did, but it was a later creation of the apostles or the disciples, because when Jesus died, they realized that their sort of cash cow of celebrity and power and influence was dead. And so with Jesus dead, they said, well, how are we going to maintain our prestige in the community? I know what we'll do. We'll make up these legends about Jesus, about all these things that he did, and then everyone will listen to us. 
This is one of the criticisms against the Bible. But the embarrassment principle actually stands in the face of that. Because think about it, if you're Peter or James or John, you're the most influential people in the early Christian church, and you tell people, go look at this book about Jesus so that you'll follow us, and that book contains a whole bunch of dumb things that you've done, are you building yourself up to be a good leader? Let me make it personal for you. If I came to you and said, um, when I was in high school, I was the valedictorian and the captain of the football team and uh, the most popular kid in school. You'd say, well, that might be true, but it's all really convenient for you if it's true. So you could be making it up. But what if I then said, well, actually, in, in high school, um, all of the nicknames that anybody gave me in, in high school all related to how I was overweight. You would say, well, why would you make up a story like that? Because it doesn't give you any advantage whatsoever. Because it's likely true. The same thing is in this text. Peter, James, and John look like buffoons through the entire gospel. In fact, I would go a step farther and say, pretty much every human in the entire Bible looks like a buffoon. And that's because the Bible is not a recounting of amazing people who did amazing things. It's the recounting of an amazing God who gave grace to messed up people. And it also shows that these guys were not trying to build up prestige or power or influence for themselves, but they were recounting something that was so amazing that they needed other people to know about it, even if it made them look bad. The second of these proofs of authenticity that show up in this text is a little bit more technical, but I think it's, it's actually helpful for us. Um, it's the, the principle of the son of man language. So you see in here, Jesus talks about himself as the son of man. And that's a, a term that's pulled from the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament prophesying the Messiah. And so Jesus is asserting his messiahship with this term, son of man. The interesting thing about the phrase, though, is that while Jesus uses it quite a bit in his ministry, the early church fathers for the first couple centuries of Christianity after Jesus was on earth didn't really use the term. They used all sorts of other terms for Jesus Christ, Savior, Messiah, all these things, but they didn't use the term Son of Man. Now, there's a criticism against the Bible that the Bible was not written within 50 or 100 years of the events of Jesus' life, but that it was written hundreds of years later, that these legends developed over time, and somewhere in the third or fourth century, the church codified what the Bible is so that they could have political power over people. Here's the problem with that. You would expect if a document was created in the second, third, or fourth century that the language would match that of the church of that time. But the church of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century was not using the term son of man, and yet it shows up multiple times in the Gospels. Why would they use completely different language if they were writing it two or 300 years later? Because they didn't write it 200 or 300 years later. The Gospel of Mark, depending on who you study, was probably written within 15 or 20 years of Jesus' life on earth, which means that it's easily falsifiable. In other words, you could look at other people and say, well, were other people saying that what Mark wrote was not true? You just don't find those people. I mean, think, 20 years ago, what was happening? 9-11, right? And basically, everyone in this room was alive for that. We saw it. There were thousands of people who were there on the ground who saw it. If someone wrote later, like, 
you know, 500 years later what happened at 9-11, maybe there would be a chance that they got it wrong. But if someone wrote a history of what happened right now, we could say, no, that's not true. I saw it. Guess what? Mark wrote down within 15 or 20 years what Jesus did and said, and there was nobody in his time who was saying, that didn't happen. The Bible is true. It's real history. And that's really important for us because what what we're going to talk about today is, I think, one of the most important doctrines of the entire Bible. And it's, it's challenging, but if you get it, if you understand it, it can completely change the way you think about yourself and your life. So I'm really excited to study this with you. Let's walk through the text. The text starts with James and John coming to Jesus and asking him if they can sit on their right and on his left right? Um, you can almost see kind of the, the conversation happening. If you've ever had a kid come to you and say, um, dad, I have something to tell you. Just don't be mad, right? That's kind of what they're saying. Like, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever you ask. Jesus is cordial with them, of course, and they ask, can we sit on your right and on your left in your glory? Um, the right and the left would have been positions of honor, right? You think of this at the table or maybe on a throne. Um, we don't have so much of that in our culture, but we still have a little bit of it. You know, if you're at a fancy dinner, you, who you sit next to actually matters. And um, that's what the disciples were asking. Can we sit at your left and at your right in your glory? Um, but Jesus says to them, you don't understand what you're asking. And then he he gives this answer that is maybe a little bit cryptic, but we'll break it down. He says, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Okay, so this is integral to understanding why he says they don't know what they're asking. Let's break these two parts down. First of all, the cup. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, the cup or the cup of the Lord was connected with suffering or punishment almost exclusively. That's because in many cultures, one of the ways of exacting capital punishment was to make someone drink poison. Um, And so that that image, God borrows then to say, this is a picture of my punishment on people. So just an example of this, this is from the book of Habakkuk. Um, It says, the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around you and disgrace will cover your glory. There's a cup coming and this cup is connected with punishment and suffering. Okay, so that's the cup. What about the baptism? Um, First, we have to understand that at this point, when Jesus says this, this is not when he instituted baptism as we understand it today. Okay, so the baptism that we give to people to bring them into God's family, that's not what Jesus is talking about here because he doesn't institute that until he ascends into heaven. So here he's using baptism a little bit differently. And to understand that, you have to look back again at how the Old Testament uses the word baptism and how the writers of Jesus' day were using the word baptism. Um, Baptism has a very basic meaning, to wash, uh, but it also has many other less used meanings, uh, one of which is the idea of being overwhelmed. So the picture would be, um, like follow me on this, but if you're a surfer and you're surfing on a wave and the barrel of the wave crashes over you and overwhelms you, they would say that you were baptized by that wave. Which, as a guy who lived in Southern California for a while, is like the most totally awesome way to talk. Like, dude, that wave totally baptized you. (laughs) Turns out the Jews were the original surfer bros, right? Um, But that's how they used it. Here's an example of it. So Isaiah 21 says, my heart staggers, horror has appalled me. That word appalled in the Hebrew is the word baptized. It has so overwhelmed me, so surprised me, so taken me out of my element, so taken away my control that I'm appalled. 
So what is Jesus saying when he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? He's saying, can you suffer like I'm about to suffer? Can you be overwhelmed? Can your control be taken away in the way that I am about to be overwhelmed and my control is going to be taken away? Their answer, we can, which of course they can't. So Jesus says to them, look, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, which is more than likely a reference to the fact that those three guys there They were going to suffer for the faith. Peter and James were going to be martyred for their faith. John was going to be exiled to Patmos for the last years of his life because of his faith. In a small way, they were going to experience suffering and overwhelming and and control taken away from them. But Jesus then says, but to sit at my right and my left, it's not for me to grant. These places have been prepared for those whom they've been prepared for. And so it seems that what Jesus is saying is that there are already people who are going to receive those places. So what's he talking about? What most commentators will say is that he's talking about the two men who are going to be crucified on either side of him, on his right or on his left. And once you, you understand that, you start to see what this text is teaching us. It sort of unlocks it for you in a sense. Remember the question that they asked? Jesus, can we sit at your right and on your left? Where? In your glory? And Jesus' answer to them is, if you want to be there, and you're going to have to suffer like me, you're going to have to be overwhelmed like me, but trust me, guys, you're not going to be those guys because those places are already prepared for two people. Which helps us understand something really important about Jesus' glory. His glory is the cross. When James and John asked that question, I'm sure they had something else in mind. Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory? They probably thought shining bright lights, the power of God, the overwhelming presence of heaven. Maybe they thought influence. Maybe they thought riches. But Jesus says, no, the glory is in the cross that I'm about to take. And so Jesus' principle is that honor works differently in the kingdom of God. If you want glory, it's not going to look like every other worldview or every other religion teaches you what glory is. It's not going to be about achieving or progressing or growing in order to get a higher position in heaven or or in your church or your mosque or your synagogue or whatever. It's about suffering. Which makes us think back to Mark chapter 8 when he said that if you're going to be my disciple, you take up your cross and you follow me. The one who suffers, the one who's willing to give up his life for others, that is the one who is first. Right, The last will be first. After this, the disciples get angry at James and John for their questions. So Jesus calls them together and says, okay, let me, let me break this down for you guys. You know how in the world there are people who have positions of power and they use those positions of power to lord it over other people, to control them, to, to exercise authority for their own benefit. You know how that happens, guys? That's not how it's going to be with you guys. In the kingdom I bring, everything is different. 
If you want to be the one who is honored, if you want to be the one who is great, then you must become a servant. You must take any authority or power that you have and use it for the sake of other people, not for yourself. In order to become first among many, you must become the slave of all. Because that's what I do. The Son of Man came not to be served, even though he should have been, but to serve, to put himself last, to make, him the sl- make himself the slave of all and give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so that's the text. How do we apply this to our lives? Um, the, the question of James and John It seems like a a bad question based on a reading of the text, and it is, and I want to break down two reasons why it is. But before we get there, I want to first give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. When James and John ask this question, they're actually just holding on to a promise that Jesus had just given them. So if, if you were to read this story, not in Mark, but in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has just finished telling them that in his glory, there are going to be 12 thrones, and that the 12 apostles are going to sit on these 12 thrones and they are going to judge the nations of Israel. And so in James and John's mind, they're thinking, okay, so Jesus is going to give 12 thrones and we're going to sit on one of those thrones, so um, hey, can we just sit like, on the ones that are closest to you? It's like a seven-year-old's birthday party, right? You always want to sit by your best friend. Can we sit on the, the chairs that are closest to you, Jesus? And I think that's really important for us to understand because what they're doing actually seems pretty pious, doesn't it? They heard a promise from Jesus. They're holding Jesus to his promise. Of course, you can tell they get it all wrong, right? Which should make every Christian evaluate themselves and say, well, just because I have pious-looking behavior doesn't mean I understand Jesus. The same was true for the disciples. They didn't understand the cross, They didn't understand the context in which Jesus was talking. He had just for the third time predicted his death. And so when they asked to be in his glory, they thought of something completely different. But Jesus was saying, my glory, my glory is the cross. So how does that look in our lives? The world tells you The only way that you're going to matter, the only way you're going to be significant, the only way you're going to be valuable is if you are advancing, you're progressing, you're growing. But the fact of the matter is you're never going to reach that. No matter how much money you make, you could always make more. No matter how far you advance in the company, you could always advance a little bit farther or grow the company a little bit bigger from the top. You could always have a little bit more influence. You could always have a little bit better reputation. Your kids could always be a little bit better behaved. Your car could be a little bit nicer. Your house could be a little bit bigger. You could be a little bit smarter or more attractive. There's always a little bit more that you can get. And and if you were to ask somebody, and I invite you to do this, ask somebody who has more than you of whatever it is you value. They have more influence or power or money or wealth or whatever it is. You go ask them, is it enough? I can almost guarantee if they're being honest with you, they'll say, no, it's never enough. There's always a little bit more that I want. And so if we're pursuing glory, like like the disciples asked Jesus to give them glory, we are on this constant hamster wheel of wasting ourselves for no ultimate gain. 
the cross says something different. See, Jesus, who already had all things under his control, all things at his disposal, says that his glory, his greatest moment of advancement or progress or growth or whatever you want to call it, is when he gives up his life on a cross for you. The guy who was at the absolute top, even the absolute top, wasn't, in a sense, completely satisfying for him. He wanted you. And he was willing to go go to the cross to give it to you. And on that cross, he didn't say, like Buddha said at the end of his life, strive without ceasing. No, at the end of Jesus' life, he said, it is finished. Which means the cross cuts you off from that need to progress or advance or grow in this life. That need to pull it off, to be something, to be noticed, to be loved, to be valuable. It cuts you off from that and says, none of that actually matters. No matter how far you progress, no matter how much you grow, and antithetically, no matter how much you sin or no matter how far you run from God, it is finished. You can imagine it like this. Like you come into God's office. Let's pretend God has an office. You come into God's office and you're reading off your resume of all the things you pulled off in life. God, I'm in church most Sundays. I pray regularly. I read my Bible at home. I try to raise my kids in the faith. I give my offerings. I'm generally pretty good to my neighbor. You know what? I'm not even getting into all this political stuff on one side or the left. I'm trying to be balanced. You can imagine God, he's writing down notes. He's like, okay, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm, okay. You finish, and then he, he sits back in his chair, and he says, well, okay, based on the evidence, I'm going to have to kill Jesus. Because no matter what good you've done in your life, it's not enough. And that's offensive. Because some of us think we're doing pretty well. I'm tempted to think that. Like my life, by the average Canadian standards, looked pretty good. I haven't really royally messed it up in any ways that are visible. But God says, the cross says, that's not enough. It will never be enough. But can I give you the the beautiful implication of that? The beautiful implication of the fact that what you're doing will never be enough is that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to say it one more time because I think you need to get it through your skulls. You don't have to do anything. You're completely free. It is finished means it's finished. You're already a finished product. No amount of striving, no amount of progressing, no amount of growth, no amount of getting better at anything is going to amount to anything. And so you don't have to do anything. You want me to get really up in your pious personal space? You don't have to follow the Ten Commandments. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to pray. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to be good to your neighbor. You don't have to raise your kids in the faith. You don't have to do anything. Because it's already done. Brothers and sisters, your schedule is free. So what are you going to do now? I hope you're not going to go back to slaving away at some job that's going to give you a pitiful amount of money compared to the riches of heaven. I hope you're not going to go back to worrying about what other people think about you 
When the God of the universe was willing to put his life on the line for you, I hope you're not going to go back to, to taking your time to worry about your health or whatever the next thing is that's going to threaten our society. When God has promised, I'm either going to let you live by protecting you from everything on this earth, or I'm going to let you die so that you can come be with me in heaven and enjoy all this good stuff, and that's totally on me. I get to decide. No virus, no mandates, nobody makes that decision except me. Brothers and sisters, you are free. So don't go back to that stuff. Now, am I saying that you should quit your job and you should leave your house and you should not care about what's going on in the world? No, you should care about those things. But man, do not let those things define you. Do not let those things be the things you run to to be valuable, to feel like you matter. Because it's already done for you. You don't have to do anything. And this should be the definitive quality of all of Christianity. More than any other religion, or even some versions of Christianity that say, you need to be a little bit better, you need to say a little bit more prayers, you need to do some more good things to other people. As Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, his whole ministry was just telling people about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing he wanted to know more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I hope that's true for us as well. So the disciples, of course, didn't understand the cross, but I think there's another reason why their request uh, was, well, for lack of a better term, pig-headed. They didn't understand Jesus' purpose. You saw it in the text. Jesus just told them that he's going to die for them, that he's going to be mocked and flogged and spit upon, and he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be killed. And the very next verse, of course, is that James and John come to them and say, hey, can we sit on your left and on your right in your glory? This is so relationally inappropriate. (laughs) Like, you can imagine somebody comes to you and they're like, I have terminal cancer and I'm going to die in two weeks. You're like, "Uh, yeah, right. Um, But can we talk about me? That's what the disciples are doing. Why? Because they didn't understand Jesus' purpose. They were so focused on themselves that they couldn't realize what was going on right in front of them. And while it's easy to look at this text and say, what buffoons make it about themselves all the time, isn't it true that that is the definition of all of our lives? We're constantly thinking about ourselves. And when ourself isn't happy because of something else that's going on in the world, the first place we look at is ourselves. Maybe you're a parent, and your kids are really getting on your nerves. And honestly, you're a little bit angry because you sort of take it personally. You raised these kids and you thought you did a better job than this. And the fact that they aren't listening to you, that's an affront to you. Because, well, in your mind, it's all about you. No matter that those kids, they're still learning. They don't know how to manage their emotions. And they're trying to test the boundaries. And honestly, they probably had a bad day at school or have something else going on in their life. But we don't see that because we focus on ourselves. Maybe you're a teenager. You don't understand why your parents don't get it. You don't understand why those rules are in place. Because honestly, in your mind, it's all about you. No matter that that your parents, they're actually parenting for the first time too, just so you know. 
And they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to do what's best. And they have some things on their mind that if they were on your plate would absolutely crush you. We don't care about that because we only care about ourselves. Or maybe we come into church and we're a little bit irritated because, you know, there aren't really things for my demographic at this church. Or maybe I don't really like that song or the preaching doesn't go as short as I would like it to go or, or whatever thing is going on. And really, we think those things because we think it's all about us. Even though every one of those things is in place to bless somebody else, we only think about ourselves. Maybe you're a person who looks out at society and you can't understand why people capitulate to all the government mandates about vaccines and, and masks and you just want things to get back to normal. But if you're honest, it's kind of about yourself. You just want things to be back to normal. And you're not in the ICUs. You're not talking to the healthcare workers. And even if those things aren't overwhelmed, there are people who need that security right now. But we think about ourselves. Or maybe you're a person who thinks all those people who didn't take a vaccine or are really kind of lax with their mask wearing, those people are just idiots. Like, why? Do they not understand that this is a real thing and that real people are dying? But honestly, as much as you'd like to think it's about all those other people that are dying, it's kind of about you. You kind of want to feel justified for the fact that you listened. You want to feel good about yourself. Because you're not talking to those people. You're not hearing their nuanced reasons for why they chose to not get a vaccine or to push against government mandates. It's all about you. And I could go on, but you get the point. By nature, we are blind what is exactly in front of us, even if it's the Son of God telling us he's going to die for our sins. But once we realize that, once we realize what Jesus says, that I am going to die for you, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to die so that you can have the message that it is finished, you are paid for, there is nothing left for you to do. So what are you going to do now? Well, you can get your eyes off your own navel and up to the people in front of you. Since you have nothing left to earn for yourself, no value, no status, no wealth, no prosperity, you don't have to earn any of that because it's all yours in Christ. You got a lot of free time and a lot of people who have needs. So Jesus says, doesn't he? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many so that you, like me, would not be like the Gentiles who lorded over everyone and used their authority and their status to take advantage of other people and to look down on them, but to be servants like me. The easiest way to make this connection is something that uh, the Lutheran fathers gave us. I love it. It's a doctrine of vocation. Vocation is just a Latin word that means you're calling in life. And basically, the idea of vocation is that God planted you in a specific place in the world at a specific time with specific skills and characteristics so that you could serve specific people. And the way that vocation is broken down is into three spheres, the family, the church, and society. In each of those spheres, you have a role that is uniquely yours. So think about what is your role in your family? Are you a father, a mother, husband, wife, child, grandparent, grandchild? How would God 
by putting you in that position, want to serve the other people in your family? How about your church? Who are you in your church? Are you a man? A woman? A child? Old? Young? Lifelong Christian? Basically brand new to this thing? How could God have specifically positioned you in this church to be blessing to other people? How about society? What are you in society? Citizen? Neighbor? Co-worker? Employer? Employee? How could God have put you into that position in order that you specifically with your gifts and characteristics could bless other people? This is the doctrine of vocation. And this is really important because sometimes we get our sights set on things way out there, way too big for us. When God says, love your neighbor, which I'm pretty sure he meant to say neighbor because he meant us to think close to ourselves. To start with your family and then your church and then society. To think local because God has put other people in other places in their vocations to serve those people out there, but he's called you to serve your people right here. And now that you've got nothing to do and your schedule is totally free, serve those people. Now I want to get a little bit more specific uh, on this because for our congregation, um, service has been a difficult thing to do for the last year and a half or so. Uh, with the exception of basically our musicians and Steve, our tech guy, uh, most of us have been able to continue listening to church, worshiping without really having to serve the church in any way. Uh, but now that we're back in person, hopefully, for good, I want us to start thinking about what does surface look like again for our congregation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list of a number of ways that you can serve our congregation. Some of them are things we're already doing. Um, some, of the, some of them are things that are aspirational, like things that I've dreamt up that I thought, if, if we could have somebody who would do this, we would enhance our ministry, we would serve more people, we would bless people with this spot. And what I want you to do as I go through this list is to not think, oh, somebody else would do that. Or somebody else is better suited for that. No, God puts you in this room to hear my words today. Part of your vocation is being part of this church. So if something on this list jumps out to you, it catches your eye or your ear, don't wait. Ask me about it. Because even if it's something you don't know anything about, I will train you, I will support you, I will give you all the resources you need. That's my job. Ephesians 4 says, I equip the saints. That's why I'm here. So I'm going to read this list to you, and, and I want you to think about how you can jump back into service in our congregation, because frankly, every Christian should be serving. You don't have to be a Christian if you don't want to. But if you're going to be a Christian, you serve. So before I read this list, let's go to the Holy Spirit and ask for him to motivate our hearts to service. Holy Spirit, come and work in every one of our hearts to think about how we can serve you and your kingdom because we know that we make selfish decisions by nature, but we need your power in us to see the cross, to see it is finished, to see that our lives are far more open than we thought they were so that we can serve you and people around our congregation. Amen. Oops, excuse me. The first thing is a setup coordinator. I would love somebody who would be in charge of Sunday mornings to know every single task that needs to get done so that somebody comes to me or to somebody else and says, hey, what do we need to get done? They say, talk to this person. A volunteer coordinator, somebody who oversees all these positions, 
asks people, do you need something? Is there some way that we can support you? Are there resources that you need? I want to have a mentoring program. A person who oversees a group of our older members of our congregation who intentionally are reaching out to the younger members of our congregation. Not because necessarily older members always have all the answers, but because we want to build those bonds across generations. You could be a life group coordinator. Like you could oversee the entire life group program. You could recruit new leaders. You could give them the resources they need. You could check in with them and see how they're doing. You could be a life group facilitator, like organize a life group. Be the one who opens your home or leads people through the Bible study that I will write for you and I will give you all the answers to. As many of you, as many of you know, um, my admin assistant, Catherine, is leaving in about a month and a half or so. That means there's going to be admin work that needs to be done. Are you willing to serve by balancing a, a credit card statement or keeping in contact with services that we pay for? You could be a lead event coordinator. Uh, later this month, we're going to start doing outreach through our lead events, our Life Talks series. You could be the one who organizes the meals and the outreach to get people in. You could call members and say, hey, who are you inviting to our lead event so that more people can hear about Jesus? We could use a social media manager, somebody who's looking at content, bringing in content, keeping me on task to write or produce content so that we could always be present online. We need people to help with audio and visual in worship. Alex is a great guy and he volunteered to help Steve in the back and he's learning. But it turns out, if Steve gets hit by a bus, not that we want that, we need more people. <laughs> or maybe you want to do audio-visual outside of worship. You're a video editor. Or you're somebody who understands how YouTube works. Or IGTV. Or TikTok. Or any of these things. So that we could put audio-visual content online. You could be a children's ministry teacher. Our children's ministry is starting up this week. I believe we only have two teachers, which again, is not enough if we want to keep this rotation going. You could be part of the prayer or concern team as the coordinator. Prayer or concern is whenever somebody comes to me and says, hey pastor, can you pray about this thing? I have a group of people that I can send that email to who are immediately not just going to pray about it, but they're going to check in on that person and say, I heard that your mother died, I heard that your sister's in the hospital, or I heard that you lost your job. I want to help you. Obviously, you could be a member of that team. You could be an assimilation coordinator. When we get new people to come to our congregation, you're the person who checks in with them, helps them know the lay of the land, what we do, how to get in touch with people who they need to get in touch with, what to do. You get them into a life group. You introduce them to people at our congregation. You could be a community partnership coordinator. I would love to start partnering with community organizations around here to do good work in our communities, to, to go with people who are already moving in a direction that helps people so that more people can be served. And finally, a mission trip coordinator. One of our dreams as a congregation is to put together mission trips to get people out of Mississauga, to see other churches, to serve people who we are in fellowship with but we don't see. Could you be that person to put together a schedule to contact congregations? All of these things would be beautiful things to have. So I pray that as you look at this list, you see either yourself in one of these roles or after church, you're going to go to somebody who you know would be really good at one of these roles, and you're going to say, hey, I saw that thing, and I think you could do it. Let's be Christians who serve, like our Savior who did not come to be served, but to serve. Now let me finish with this, um, because, well, if you know me, you know that I can't help myself but preach on the Lord's Supper. In fact, when I'm done being the pastor here in like 50 years or something, 
I hope that at least one thing you will say about me is that guy loved the Lord's Supper. Jesus says to his disciples, you can't drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You can sip from it, you can get a little bit of suffering, but you won't be able to suffer the full wrath of God because I'm going to do it for you. That cup of the Lord that had been a refrain of the Old Testament of God's punishment and wrath over sin was then drunk to the dregs by Jesus on the cross. And so when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, borrows that same language to talk about the Lord's Supper, the cup of the Lord, what is he doing? He's saying, in a sense, that same cup that Jesus drank from when he suffered God's wrath is now handed to you, but there's no wrath left in it. All that's left in it is Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of your sins, your life and salvation. So come to the Lord's Supper because the wrath is out of the cup and all that's left is a cross. A cross that declares it is finished, you are paid for, you will live forever and nothing can change that. God grant it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us to declare over our lives it is finished. I pray that you would give us understanding, remind us of this truth as we go about our lives. It is so easy to think that we need to get things done in order to matter, in order to keep our jobs, in order to be good parents or husbands or wives or good citizens. And while you love that we do those things, help us realize we don't have to. You have given us everything that we need everything in Christ we need, everything in Christ we have. And so give us opportunities to do things for others, to be servants in our vocations for the betterment of our families, of our church, and our society. Ask those things in your name. Amen.